You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. I, I always look at this and I, I think of it like the art world is so strange because even the people who do it for a living don't seem like they're very good at it. <laughs> feel like who art ed? Who art is? Mr. Wood art ed me. Either way, it's ambiguous. It works on so many levels. I know. Welcome. So we're going to talk about the work in three parts. The first part is in situ, and in that I'm going to talk about a little bit of the historical context so we can sort of understand where the piece came from and the ideas behind it. Okay. Um, the second portion is going to be in gallery, where we're going to essentially have a gallery talk, sort of a cold read. What are we seeing in the work? What connections do we make? And the third segment is going to be in studio where you and I can go back and forth sharing our takeaways from the piece. Okay. I always forget to record the introduction. I always do that last. Okay. Today is going to be the first time that I intro- do the introduction first. So today I am joined by Mrs. Noon. Hello, Mr. Wood. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me and asking me to join you. Today we're going to be talking about Keith Herring. Now for our in situ segment. It just gives us some context. It's about the artist and where this came from. Where this all came from. Keith Herring was born in 1958. He comes from Reading, uh, Pennsylvania. And at first, he started off studying graphic design in a commercial art school. But then, um, after I think it was like two semesters in 1978, he moved to New York to study at the School of Visual Arts where um, obviously he was studying to be a fine artist, which today seems like kind of a weird distinction between a graphic artist and a fine artist, but uh, there was for a long time sort of a division between, quote, the high arts and the low arts, some being more respected and some being less respected. Um, And among the things he studied, which I absolutely love, he studied semiotics, which is the study of signs and signifiers. And, like, I just... Like, the nerd in me loves that he studied semiotics because, like, anytime I talk about that, like, people's eyes glaze over. And I just, I imagine he would be the other person at a dinner party that I could talk to about, like, Marshall McLuhan and stuff like that. You know, I want to interject real quick. When I was reading through this, semiotics was a new word for me. It was a new learning for me. So I appreciated that you were that you had defined that yeah. for us because that was definitely new for me. Yeah. It, it's new for <coughs> almost everybody. I <laughs> but but it, it is kind of interesting, and it comes up, I think, later as we look at his work. Um, now, 
in New York, he became a, a part of the alternative art scene. Um, he became friends with prominent graffiti artists like uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat was probably the, uh, among the more famous ones. And, you know, his work was informed by those relationships with other artists and sort of one of his influences was Christo, um, which was, Christo was an, an artist who's done some really interesting stuff in the public space. Like Christo um, made a giant bridge out of fabric connecting a small island to the mainland so that people could walk across it and have the sensation of walking on water and just creating these interesting interactive pieces. And that was informative to Keith Haring because he wanted stuff that the public could interact with. And so around 1980, if I recall correctly, he started to make drawings in um, subway stations on platforms. Like there would be unused ad space and it would just be a matte black board. He started to make drawings using white chalk on that black board to, um, to sort of develop his style. He did that in a public space so he could sort of see how people were responding to what he was making. And he considered that his sort of laboratory um, for his artistic practice at that time. Can I jump in real quick? Yeah. It sounds like in his own way he was trying to figure out his own style and he found a place where he could make rough drafts but also allow people to see his work so that he could get feedback and develop his style based on, I don't know, responses that he got from people um, that he saw that saw his work in those subway platforms or something to that effect. Yeah, I mean, he was... He was absolutely interested in, and he took very seriously how people responded to his artwork. Like one of the myths that people have is like the idea of this lone, solitary, genius artist who has inspiration in a vacuum and, and it transforms the way people look at stuff. But Keith Haring was very much interested in having his work accessible to the masses. He, he said, um, you know, if you're going to call yourself an artist, you can't be creating work for just a small select group of people that go to galleries and, and fancy dinner parties. You need to be making art for everyone sure. because art is for everyone. And on that, along that line, I think it was 1986 or so, mid-80s, mid to late 80s, he opened up the pop shop, which, um, you know, put his designs onto posters, um, toys, stickers, all sorts of things that were, were commercially available at a low cost. And that was kind of a controversial move, and he got a, a fair amount of criticism from the art world for that because... You know, a lot of people think about the value in art as a collector. You want it to be something that's rare and valuable. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, why are you paying so much money for, for, for that work on, on a canvas? But he really strongly believed that art is for everyone and wanted it to be out there. Um, and later on, towards the end of his life, he established a, a charitable foundation that lent his images to uh, and financial support to organizations for AIDS research as well as for children's programs, um, which I will, you know, obviously have a soft spot for children. I know you do as yes, well. Yes, I do. Um, and I love that he took that avenue where it can be accessible to everyone and enjoyed by everyone. That's what it should be about. Yeah. And so I think we're going to wrap this up now and move on to our in-gallery segment. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. 
Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Calm Cove podcast can help you sleep deeply all night long. Calm Cove has deeply relaxing meditation music and ambient sounds like ocean waves and crackling fires. All of our episodes are designed to help you relax and to fall asleep fast. Calm Cove is brought to you by the team behind Sleep Cove, the sleep podcast that consists of spoken word hypnosis, meditation and stories. So if you want to listen to a beautiful soundscape tonight, search for Calm Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see how we're helping millions of people relax and go to sleep every night. Now for our in-gallery segment, we're going to have a discussion looking more carefully at one piece. Um, Today, the specific piece that we're looking at is titled... Best Buddies. Best Buddies from 1987. Um, And that was available in his pop shop. It's a very widely circulated image. So let's just start off, like, what jumps out to you about this piece? You know, when I first saw this, it was familiar to me, which I love. So as someone who doesn't know a lot about art, I was able to at least draw from my background saying, I've seen that this, this image before, which was comforting to me. And it really spoke to me about what we're trying to do here at Highlands in terms of being kind and being friends and accepting everyone. Because when I look at this image and I see people, although there's no faces on these these individuals in this yeah. picture, their arms are around each other and they're they're bringing one another to each other in a kind sort of way. So it was a great connection for me to make about what we're trying, what message we're trying to send kids and adults here at Highlands. Yeah, and I think I think uh, one of the things I'm hearing you say is you're noticing the pose is showing that connection between people. Yes. Without showing the details of like the face, the clothes, and stuff like that, it's just sort of symbols of people, which kind of again I think as we talked about in the background, he studied semiotics, he studied signs and signifiers, and how to sort of visually communicate. And I think that was a good sort of symbolic representation of that human connection. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I always look at this and I, I think of like the art world is so strange because even the people who do it for a living don't seem like they're very good at it. <laughs> because like I look at this and I remember we used to have a kindergarten assessment that was self-portraits and this would score not the highest mm-hmm. on, on our kindergarten assessment. But you would look at it and be like, oh, you tried, you know? And if, if I saw this from, from a high school student, I might say, are we really pushing ourselves as far as we can? Right. But then when you see it in a museum, you're like, I better not say anything because clearly there's something I'm missing. This is brilliant in some way that I, I just don't understand. You and know? It's, it, to me, when I look at this, I agree. It's simple. And how can simple be so good? But it's to me, it's what, what messages it's sending and what, what connections can we all make from that? Yeah. And, you know, um, I always try to take the contrarian p- perspective, but, you know, I, I, I just love this piece so much. I love Keith Haring in general because of that simplicity, because of the elegance that simplicity can bring. You know, a lot of times we want more and more and more and more, sure. but it's sort of a breath of fresh air when we see something that is simple. And the simplicity also, if we, if we break this down, those two figures, they're different colors, right? Yeah. But 
they're not colors that I ever see on a real person's skin tone. Sure. So, so that takes it away from a specific cultural background and it becomes more about people. Yeah, the human race. Yeah, it's the human race. Absolutely. But it's also different colors, even though they're not realistic colors. He's signifying there that it's different races, different backgrounds coming together. There's a unity in the diversity, even though it's not tied to like, okay, we, we can't tell is one person, you know, Indian or another person is African. We can't tell what culture it came from. Um, just like there's no clothing to indicate fashion mm -hmm. because fashion goes out of style. I see myself in pictures from, from the nineties <laughs> and too. I cringe, you know, I, I, I was wearing pants that were two feet wider than I was and stuff like that. But he removes all that stuff. He removes the trendy stuff. And you could argue the color scheme is a little bit, you know, trendy or, or whatever. But um, bright, bold colors are always fun. Certain color schemes go in and out of fashion. But bright, bold colors, I'm sorry, they are always fun. And especially to... a like a, a younger audience, like this reads as young to me. It this does. Feels, it definitely pops. Yeah, it, it pops. It has that cartoonish feel. And, you know, the silhouettes of people, that doesn't really change. Right. Um, when I've shown this to classes, I've asked, like, when do you think this was made? And guesses will be anywhere in like a 200-year span. Wow. Because okay. it doesn't have... Yeah, it doesn't age. It, it doesn't have that. Mm -hmm. Like, there are people who thought this was made last week, sure. you know? Um, and it could be. It reminds me a lot of probably artists who were influenced by Keith Haring, but it does still feel to me current, which I think is because of the fact that he reduces and eliminates any unnecessary details. And he also gets rid of anything that might distract from his overall message. I loved it. And I was very, very thankful to get some background knowledge on what it was. Because like I said, it wasn't unfamiliar to me, but I didn't know anything about it. So now I always like to wrap up the in-gallery segment by just asking if you could put this in another place, if you could take this work out of the museums and the gallery world, where would you like to see this hang? Um, you know, I, I, I look at it and think, looking through a child's lens. So I would imagine I would want it to be or would imagine seeing it in a location where there would be a lot of children. So that could be a library, uh, a park, um, a school. Yeah. Um, you know, so are we going to wrap up? Or Keith Haring mural all over Highlands. Maybe we will. You <laughs> never know what's to come. Um, but definitely a child-centered location. Yeah, I would agree. And and actually, he did a lot in children-centered locations. Like, he did um, a mural at a children's hospital that oh, actually he collaborated with a lot of children. Sure. He went to schools and gave workshops with children. His charitable foundation does a lot to help children's programs. Um, he definitely had a soft spot for kids. Yeah, and you can definitely tell. I love that answer, but I'm going to say I would put this in the DMV. I oh. feel like this, I feel like it needs to go somewhere where people need happiness. Happiness, a DMV you know? would be a good place. Like the last, every time I go to the DMV, it's just like nothing against the people there, but like the, the space itself, it's just, it's so austere. And I would love, you know, one of those austere places, be it a DMV or or the inside of a hospital, you know, I'd like to see that pop of color where people need to yes, be cheered up. I absolutely agree know? with that. Those are great points. And now for our final segment, the in-studio segment. The in-studio segment. Think about what strategies are working. Take it. Good artists. Take it your own. Copy. Great artists. Steal. 
go ahead, steal this art. Make it your own. These are the takeaways. This is what you can apply to your own work. What advice would you give to someone making art based on what you've learned about Keith Haring and his work? Um, you know, I think my biggest takeaway with this is simple is okay. Um, yeah. Having a simple design, a simple product um, can often leave open for a lot of interpretation. Um, yeah, absolutely. That a lot of people can contribute to. Yeah, sort of minimal detail makes yeah. maximum potential for connections. Absolutely. And I think, I think um, simple but well-crafted. Yes. You know, it, it's very neat. Like, he, he doesn't have scribbly lines inside of those shapes. They're very, very good neat point. and well-drawn. Well it is simple but well-executed. And that's, that's what makes it a good, elegant simple. And on that note, what I would say is when I see people trying to draw stuff like this, the biggest thing to remember is you want to be confident in what you are drawing and realize that a line that is imperfect but flows smoothly is going to be much better than a line that looks very hesitant and sketchy. Sure. You know, like looking at the lines that people use, his lines are very bold and stark and they feel confident. Mm -hmm. Like he knew what he was doing. Largely confidence is what sells the piece. Um, so I, I would encourage people to, to try to have a smooth flowing line rather than a sketchy, hesitant one. And one, one tip to get a smoother flowing line is look beyond brushes. You can also use like paint daubers and stuff like that. Like a lot of people sort of stamp dots of yep. paint. But yep. if you use that like a marker and just draw with that painting tool or a paint stick or something like that, you can get a better, smoother, more confident line a lot of times. Do you have any other... You know, Mr. Wood, I would say that after looking at his work and learning more about him, that I feel like the messages he puts out through his work um, are positive messages. And it start, got me to start thinking about, you know, when we create things, when we write things, when we produce things, you know, why wouldn't we want our message to always be kind and be positive? It fits right along with our theme here at Highlands. Yeah, I think that is such a good point, is to think about what are we putting out in the world and what does that say about us as individuals? Like, I remember when I was younger and, like, first getting my work shown in galleries, I felt like it was so important that people see my work and think that I was clever in what I was doing. But the older I got, the less I cared about the perception that I'm clever in what I'm doing. And the more, like, I just wanted something that was positive that would make people smile. Like, I remember last summer I was selling some of my prints at a fine arts fair um, right here in Naperville. And someone came by and they looked at one of my prints of hot air balloons and she said, this just makes me smile. And that made my day. Like... No, like I got plenty of praise from people saying like, oh, I see what you did there. That looks really nice. I get that reference. But at the end of the day, it, like that kind of fades. But when you see someone genuinely happy because of what you, you're doing, that, that feels good in a way that is lasting. And like, I think nobody's ever looked back and said like, man, I really wish I were meaner to people. I, the only things I look back and regret were the times I could have been nicer but wasn't. 
And so I think that positive message is something we should all take with us. I love that you got that feedback from that person that was looking at your hot air balloon print. Um, I always say to my husband that if if I could do life all over again, I would want to be an artist or um, a singer doing something that I love that makes other people happy. So I'm really glad that you are doing that and are getting that recognition. Um, And when you talk about, you know, making sure that what we're putting out there is positive, it kind of brings me back to like our, what we talk to our kids about, about the digital footprint that they're setting for themselves with the things that they're putting out into that, that global space of, of unknown and things that don't go away. Um, You know, we think we can delete messages or delete pictures, but they're always going to be there. And so when we're creating something, be it art or um, you know, something on the internet that we have to remember that it's always going to be out there and why wouldn't we want it to always be positive and sending a, a kind message? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time. This was a wonderful discussion about one of my favorite artists. I truly enjoyed it. Thank you for inviting me.